Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Barton in Washington. Today is Thursday, November 10th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. A bittersweet midterm elections outcome for candidates of African descent. I'm so excited to be re-elected for my second term in the Colorado State General Assembly. I'm ready to get to work right away on critical issues facing Colorado. We will speak with a foreign policy analyst about why Africa should be concerned about which party controls the U.S. Congress. Biden seeks consensus with Republican lawmakers after midterms. France pulls the plug on Sahel anti-terrorist operation. Somalia's Al-Shabaab militants are widening their revenue base. Normalcy returns at Kenyan Airways as pilots call off their strike. Kenya and South Africa to establish visa-free entries for travelers between their two nations. Visas between South Africa and Kenya with a view of allowing Kenyans to be able to visit South Africa on a free visa basis. And how the oldest Afrikaans broadcaster uses language to promote unity in South Africa. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Counting continues in some states following Tuesday's U.S. midterm elections as many races are still too close to call. This means that we may not know for some time whether Democrats will retain their narrow majorities in the House and the Senate or if Republicans will take control. A good number of candidates of African descent also ran for state and local offices. One of them is Nequita Ricks of Liberian descent, who won re-election for her second two-year term as Colorado State Representative for District 40. She tells me she's excited and ready to get to work on critical issues facing Colorado. Ricks also says people should take advantage of democracy and vote because every vote counts. Nikita, thank you very much, and welcome to Daybreak Africa. Thank you, James. Excited to talk to you again. So how was the election on Tuesday? The election on Tuesday was amazing. Um, Colorado had a landslide victory for Democrats, and so we're so excited. We really had a blue tsunami here in Colorado. So you won re-election? I am re-elected. I'm so excited to be re-elected for my second term in the Colorado State General Assembly, representing my House District 40. I'm ready to get to work right away on critical issues facing Colorado, such as affordable housing, mental health care, public safety, and climate change. So a message for people who believe in democracy. What does this election mean? This election means that your vote really matters. Your vote is your voice, and every vote counts. I mean, there's some really tight elections when you look across the state, um, you know, in critical places like who's going to hold the House of Representatives in Washington, who will hold the Senate, and every vote does matter. It is important that people get out to cast their votes and to say who they want to govern and to be in leadership. It is important also for the really important issues facing Colorado, facing the United States as a whole. And um, I think that people should take advantage of democracy. I believe in it, and I think that when you participate in it, it pays off. Nikita, thank you so much again, and congratulations. Thank you so much, James. Nequita Ricks is the Liberian-born immigrant candidate who just won re-election as Colorado State Representative for District 40. She was speaking with us from Aurora, Colorado. 
Winfred Russell is also a Liberian immigrant who ran for mayor of Brooklyn Park, the fourth largest city in the Minneapolis-St. Paul metropolitan area. Russell tells me that although he was not successful on Tuesday to become the next mayor of Brooklyn Park, he intends to run again in the next election. We had a rather great turnout. Uh, we had a lot of folks coming from all walks of life to participate in the electoral process here, which is a, a good thing. I listened to many residents uh, while door knocking and heard from many people on the campaign trail who said, uh, we must improve public safety uh, in my city, in Brooklyn Park. Uh, we understand that economic development and youth engagement are critical, and we will continue to work uh, in those spaces, uh, but I'm warm and humbled by the people who supported me and work on my campaign. But these things are not, uh, it's not based on qualifications or uh, experience. And so at the end of the day, I did not get enough votes uh, to become the next mayor of Buckley Park, but I'm not going anywhere. Uh, I will be here for another race sometime soon. What lessons do you think other people say in Africa, should they draw from your humble acceptance of your defeat? Well, I mean, the way I look at it is that, look, you win some and you lose some. So uh, this is an opportunity for us to go back to the drawing board and recalibrate our strategy and build more relationships and connect uh, with more people. Uh, because here, yeah, uh, democracy is a personal thing. Uh, you have to meet people where they are. Uh, it's a relational engagement type process of trying to get folks to vote for you. So unlike maybe in Africa, uh, here is much more retail, meaning that we have to go door to door. We have to speak to individual voter and tell them why you are a better candidate to represent them than your opponent. So I did not do a good job at that. So for me, uh, it's about stepping back, reevaluating my strategy and looking at how I can put a much more robust team together for the next time around. So all is not lost. You win some and you lose some. And it's about uh, doing an introspection and evaluation of how you, you perform. And it gives you an opportunity to improve on your chances for next time. So this is an opportunity. This is a win-win. I've won election before. I've lost this one. And I'm sure I will be successful in, you know, in the future. So that's how we look at it here. Winfred, thank you so much again. And um, keep up the fight for democracy. Thank you, uh, James. And it's a pleasure talking with you. Winfred Russell is an immigrant candidate of Liberian descent who lost his race to be the next mayor of the city of Brooklyn Park in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He was speaking with us from Minneapolis. As vote counting continues in some states following Tuesday's U.S. midterm elections to determine whether Democrats will retain their narrow majorities in the House and Senate or if Republicans will take control, Pearl Matibe is a journalist and foreign policy analyst. She tells me that there are good reasons for Africa to be concerned which party controls the U.S. Congress. The one reason that I think populations in Africa, as well as leaders in Africa, civil society in Africa, should be paying attention to this midterm election is this. Number one, Congress, of course, is the lawmaking body, right? So if, hypothetically, if the Republicans gain control, of the House or gain control of the Senate or both, then the remaining 
term of President Biden, they're going to make it extremely difficult for him to finish his agenda. And we know that President Biden's agenda, since we saw Secretary Blinken come to Pretoria and launch the Sub-Saharan Africa strategy, that it is, they're making a shift towards their foreign policy towards Africa. If the Republicans gain control, even despite the fact that we know historically that both parties, Republicans and Democrats, generally in their foreign policy approach to Africa, they generally go in the same direction. However, as we saw when President Trump was in office, there was the withdrawal of troops from Somalia. President Trump didn't visit the continent. He made some egregious remarks about the continent, negative remarks, right? And so when President Biden came in, he has been, and his administration been trying to take a different uh, uh, approach to that. So there are some nuances there about the kind of support, the kind of engagement. When President Trump was in office, he withdrew during COVID from, uh, wanted to withdraw from the WHO, right? We know Africa was, was severely impacted by COVID-19. Things like climate change, he wanted to withdraw from things like climate change and global alliances. And so there's a debate and a discourse going on there. If Republicans come into play, there's this question that they will, across America, begin to diminish voting rights, which means that the outcome of the next presidential election in 2024 could end up being, again, another Republican. In So you might see the impacts, the ramifications, not for the next two years, but for the next six years and beyond. Thank you so much, Pearl. It's so nice to talk with you. Okay, we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Per Matibe is a journalist and foreign policy analyst. She was speaking with us from Washington, D.C. With the fit of the Democrats' control of both the House and Senate still hanging in the balance, President Joe Biden told reporters on Wednesday at a White House news conference that he hopes to work with Republicans in Congress, whatever the outcome. Viewers' chief national correspondent Steve Herman reports from Washington. The midterm elections Tuesday marked a good day for democracy, President Joe Biden told reporters during a wide-ranging 53-minute encounter at the White House. Our democracy has been tested in recent years, but uh, with their votes, uh, the American people have spoken and proven once again that democracy is who we are. The president said the Democrats did better than expected, and he will invite leaders of both parties to the White House after he returns from the G20 summit in Indonesia to discuss how to work together to advance economic and national security priorities. Asked about his plans to pursue a second term, Biden said he intends to run and will consult with his family over the holidays, adding he is a great respecter of fate. Steve Herman, VOA News, Washington. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Thursday, November 10. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. French President Emmanuel Macron has announced a shift in his country's strategy for Africa's Sahel region, including the former end to France's nearly decade-old Bakani counter-terrorism operation. Lisa Bryant reports. Announcing the policy shift Wednesday from the southern French city of Toulon, President Macron said French military support to Sahel countries would continue, but according to principles defined and agreed, Agreed by the two sides. 
une phase d'échange avec nos partenaires africains. He said a new strategy would be worked out over the next six months after talks with African partners and allies. He said it would be based on closer cooperation with African forces. More broadly, he said there should be time limits to French interventions and that talks in the coming months would also address French bases in West Africa. Macron's announcement came three months after France pulled its forces from Mali, where it first launched an anti-jihadist operation nine years ago. It still has 3,000 troops stationed in Niger, Chad and Burkina Faso, down from a high of 5,500 region-wide. The French have claimed that it could have been worse without their intervention, but honestly, it looks really grim today in, uh, in the central Sahel. Jean-Hervé Gisekel is the Dakar-based head of the international crisis groups Sahel Project. Compared to 10 years ago, uh, jihadist groups have expanded in, uh, in the whole region. They have actually also extended uh, into, uh, into coastal West, uh, West Africa. And even beyond uh, the presence uh, of jihadist group, you have um, increasing violence against civilians. You have an increasing number of non-state armed groups. Mali and Burkina Faso have experienced coups and over Barkhane's lifetime, hostility against former colonial power France has grown in some countries. In Mali, the government has instead turned to Russia's private military Wagner Group for support, which critics accuse of increasing insecurity and human rights violations. Lisa Bryant for VOA News, Paris. Kenyans holding ordinary passports will be allowed to enter South Africa without a visa for up to three months per year. The agreement was reached during the visit of South African President Cyril Ramaphosa to Nairobi, where he held bilateral talks with Kenya's President William Ruto. The two leaders also focused on intra-Africa trade, climate change, transport, as well as regional peace and security. Maureen Ojiambo reports. The decision to allow visa-free entry into South Africa reached in bilateral talks Wednesday between Kenya's President William Ruto and visiting South African President Cyril Ramaphosa. The two states signed memorandum of understandings and one agreement. The signed deal promises cooperation in the fields of correctional services, housing and human settlement, cooperation between the Kenya School of Government and the National School of Government, as well as an agreement on audiovisual co-production. Ramaphosa offered details on the 90-day visa-free visit that are allowed as part of the deal. You and I also took opportunity to discuss the thorny issue between our two countries of visas between South Africa and Kenya with a view of allowing Kenyans to be able to visit South Africa on a free visa basis and that this dispensation will commence on the 1st of January in 2023 and that our officials will speed up the processes of putting this into effect. President William Ruto said that President Ramaphosa's visit is instrumental in developing a permanent dialogue as well as building common principles and shared values between the two states and Africa. President Ramaphosa and I have also agreed to develop a sustainable mechanism to identify, monitor, and resolve 
non-tariff barriers that limit the trade potential between our two countries. We are concerned over the continuing threats to international peace and security, particularly conflicts in the Horn of Africa, the Great Lakes region, and the Sahel. These conflicts cause suffering, disorder, and lead to unsafe migration and weakening of states. Ruto says climate change is a challenge that is affecting most African countries and that developing nations, along with other parties, should ensure swift implementation of climate change finance delivery plan. Kenya and South Africa recognize climate change as a definitive challenge of our time. We reiterate the implementation of the national determined contributions, including adaptation and mitigation efforts and delivery of finance as agreed in COP27. Ramaphosa says the peace and stability as well as ending conflict within and between African countries should be a priority. He says conflict has deterred progress both on social and economic matters. We have therefore agreed that we need to remain focused on issues affecting our regions and our continent and not be distracted by other global matters that are not of our making. We advocate for African solutions for African problems. The two also agreed on a return policy when immigration laws and regulations are breached. President Ramaphosa returns home from his two-day state visit on Thursday. Reporting for viewers Daybreak Africa, I am Moreno Jumbo in Sacramento, California. Flights by Kenya's national airway, Kenya Airways, resumed on Wednesday after a court order and a pilot's strike. The four-day strike led to cancellation of scores of flights by one of Africa's largest carriers and stranded thousands of passengers. Juma Majanga reports from Nairobi. Following the court order, the pilots' union, Kenya Airlines Pilots Association, withdrew the strike notice in a statement and urged its nearly 400 members to resume duty. Employment and Labor Relations Court Judge Anne Moure had on Tuesday directed the pilots to resume their duties unconditionally. Senior Counsel John Ohaga is representing Kenya Airways in a contempt of court case against the pilots. The airline was beginning to send out um, notices for disciplinary action. So what the court has said is that pending the determination of the matter, uh, we should not harass or intimidate them. I'm not very sure to conclude that, but that's what the court ordered. The pilots' union launched the strike at Nairobi's Jomo Kenyatta International Airport late last week over pension and deferred pay disputes. The strike is estimated to have cost the airline about 12 million U.S. dollars in losses but economists say that figure could be higher, as Odiambo Ramogi, an economist in Nairobi, explains. There might be some court cases against AQ uh, for losses uh, to be mitigated. So that competitive value might uh, go higher. Kenya Airways, sometimes referred to as KQ, is one of Africa's largest carriers commanding a good market share of West and Central Africa, as well as the larger East Africa region. Analysts say labor actions could harm the airline's reputation in the region. Here again is Odiambo Ramogi. They might need to do a lot of shuffle diplomacy, just reassuring 
uh, their clients across the region. The court has directed the pilots and the airline to engage in talks to resolve their disputes. Here again is John O'Haga. It will have to be resolved one way or the other because the pilot depends on the airline for their livelihood and the airline depends on the pilot to fly the planes and generate the revenue that is required for Kenya Airways to stay afloat. So it will have to be resolved. Um, I cannot say that the resolution will be amicable, but there will have to be some give and take on both sides. Kenya's national carrier flies more than 4 million passengers to 42 destinations annually, according to its record. The partially state-owned carrier, however, has had financial problems in the recent years. Juma Majanga for VOA News, Nairobi, Kenya. United Nations experts say the small Islamic militant group Al-Shabaab has widened its revenue stream beyond its traditional activities like charging tolls at checkpoints to illegally taxing properties and construction. In a new report, UN experts say the terrorist group is seeking more funds to pay about $1 million per month in salaries to its fighters. The report says despite Somalia's crackdown on Al-Shabaab, the militants are also able to move funds through local and Islamic banks. Ahmed Mohammed reports from the Somali capital, Mogadishu. A Somali woman who declined to be named for security reasons tells viewers that a Shabab militants demanded she pay 425 US dollars this year in so-called taxes for a house she bought almost three years ago in Mogadishu. She says... A man called her on the phone and summoned her to an Al-Shabaab court outside el Shabiyah, the lower Shabeli region. She says after traveling there, she met a crowd of people from Mogadishu who were also summoned by the court. She says nobody dares to defy the group's orders because people get killed. A UN report made public this month says the Islamist militants, in an effort to increase revenue, are now charging illegal taxes on property and construction. The UN experts report says Shabab in May issued a notice to households of annual charges between 100 and 300 US dollars for iron sheet, stone, and multi-story houses. The report says the group also extorts owners of buildings and homes being constructed around Mogadishu at about 25% of the value of the development. VOA spoke to four Mogadishu residents who paid a Shabab the illegal property taxes between May and July this year, including one who paid an additional $125 fine because of delayed payment. None of them would give their names out of fear of payback from the militants. Abdisalam Gulet is a former Somali deputy intelligence chief and co-founder of Mogadishu-based security firm Eagle Range Services. He says cutting off Ashabab's funding is key winning the war against the militants. He says there's no doubt that the group gets tax from the capital and the port. Bullet says the government should come up with plans to deal with these issues. People do not pay money to Ashabab because they love it, he says. They pay due to fear. Bullet says the government needs the confidence of the Somali people. Because people know where Ashabab gets its income and the companies that are supporting the group. Somalia's government has warned against paying illegal taxes and fees to Ashabab, but Somalis say authorities cannot guarantee their security if they do not pay. 
Bullet says Al-Shabaab has embedded itself within the business sector, making it difficult to isolate it from other traders. Bullet says Al-Shabaab is committed to living in the community, though it is difficult for the government to block Al-Shabaab's financial streams. He says even traders may not know that they trade with Al-Shabaab, while others know it. Despite the government efforts to cut off Al-Shabaab financing, the UN report says the militant can freely move funds through commercial and Islamic banks and payment firms. The report says the Islamist group moves money in amount slightly less than $10,000 to avoid being flagged by anti-money laundering and terror financing monitors. The Somali government this week announced it had closed several accounts thought to be operated by Al-Shabaab. Somalia's Deputy Information Minister Abdurrahman Al-Adala spoke Monday at press conference. He says they have received more than 10,000 messages from Somalis sharing bank accounts that the Khawarij were using to get money. Al-Adala says they directed the banks and remittance firms to block the funded accounts. Abdullahi Godahbare is Somalia's former Minister for Planning and International Cooperation. He told VOA, the move to shut bank accounts affiliated with Al-Shabaab was a step in the right direction. Ahmed Mohamed for VOA News, Mogadishu, Somalia. And that's it for this Thursday, November 10th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for being our guest this morning. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Street Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa team, I am James Barton, Washington, saying, have a great day and be 